On this episode of the podcast, I have with me Kyle Randolph. He is the CISO at Optimizely. We're going to cover a few different areas during the course of our discussion. Uh, We're going to focus on bootstrapping software security programs, what has been changed over the last couple of years. We're going to kind of examine five, 10 years ago's needs versus today, and how does security partner with engineering teams, DevOps, SRE teams, and uh, going to get all his insight. I'm super excited to have him on as a guest. Thanks, Kyle. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. So um, kind of give our audience a chance to get to know you and uh, put a little context to the conversation. Can you give us a quick intro of who you are, what you do, and, and we'll kind of go from there? Yeah, I've been doing software security my whole career, about 18 years now. Started out at uh, Citrix, and so enterprise software, then clients, remote desktops. Joined as a software engineer out of boredom, found ways to get uh, local system access on Windows 2000 servers and became a security team of one way back then. Went over to Adobe when Adobe was in the news a lot for a great way to get malware on people's computers, send them a PDF or a flash file. So uh, helped clean that up, get Adobe Acrobat Reader and Flash Player into sandboxes right around the time Chrome introduced the notion of sandbox processes. Over to Twitter, when Twitter was uh, scaling up to become a big public company. And uh, the most interesting challenge there was the uh, thousands and thousands of people getting their accounts compromised every day, mainly through credential stuffing attacks, other things tied to weak passwords. So how do you reduce account compromise at massive scale? That, that was really interesting. And then finally over to Optimizely. Been here six years, joined when there was a small startup and joined to build everything out from scratch for security and then later on privacy and compliance. So scaled up a software security team as well as security partnerships throughout the organization. You've definitely had a tour of uh, challenges, it seems like, from uh, every stop. And uh, yeah, I'm going I'm to ask you about bootstrapping security program because obviously Optimizely um, was a different type of organization. But just out of curiosity, like it seems like every place you've gone, Adobe, you know, obviously in a, in a very interesting situation with Flash and Chrome, and uh, Apple deciding uh, different fates for Flash itself. And then obviously to Twitter, earlier days, security, probably an evolving program. Has anything in particular shaped your philosophy of how you approach security? I mean, because I mean, you go back to you know, your Citrix days, that's a really early exposure to, I guess, a different type of security program altogether. Yeah, I guess one thing I've learned throughout all this time, even with things changing, is that the more you can take these security decisions out of the hands of the developers, the better, and the more they can get security for free and not have to think about security or figure out security on their own, the better. So building more security into frameworks and libraries and uh, standards is a great way to grow security as opposed to like trying to get everybody to act as a, a security expert. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess, you know, when you went to Optimizely, just for context, I mean, it's been six years. How big was the organization when you first started? Right after their Series B, I think they were under 200 people and the engineering organization was a couple dozen engineers. And uh, at the time, they were getting a lot of security for free because they had a monolith running on Google App Engine. So Google Cloud Platform took care of a lot of security for them. And uh, that was good enough for a startup just getting started. But then uh, as they larger and the risk of the data they were collecting as well as the JavaScript they were serving on 
customers' websites to do A-B testing grew. The bar got raised significantly for security. And then also as the deal sizes for the customers grew, when it moved off of just like uh, one person signing up their credit card on a website to where you were doing a deal with Fortune 500 company, they don't sign that six or seven figure check without giving you a lot of security scrutiny. So we had to step up. I think most CISOs that I've talked to, especially work at a SaaS type company and you know, going through the startup phase and, and maturing as an organization, it seems that when you know the larger B2B type transactions start kicking in, that's when security goes to the top of the heap in terms of prioritization. And obviously, you want the bigger deal size, you want to be in the bigger organizations, that becomes a requirement. Most people are not really addressing that because obviously the startups moving a million miles an hour. Like, do you personally feel, you know, you've gone through a lot of different experiences, uh, you know, is that pretty much just what typically happens because of inertia or, you know, what are your thoughts around that? It's a trade-off in the early days. Like, I would say like when you're first starting off, again, like a lot of security for free from the platforms you're building on. Then uh, kind of in between there, you have the liberty to like focus on the top risk of the company, like independent of any customer expectations or compliance requirements or anything, which is really nice. And so you can be very surgical with where you focus your efforts. But then when the customers come along and they start looking at your security, like they have no idea if you're secure or not. They have no idea how surgical you're being with your risk management and uh, they don't have a security measuring stick. So instead, they're just going to send you questionnaires asking you everything under the sun about your security. And uh, you may not want to do all of these things that they're asking you to do. They may not make you any more secure, but they don't have a better way of measuring. So they look for that. They may look for compliance as a, another like proxy for measuring how secure you are. And unfortunately, it's imperfect. But what they're really looking for is, is your security program mature enough to not like uh, put me at an unacceptable risk and since they don't have a good way of measuring security maturity, they, they look at these other methods. So when you, I guess, kind of tying into you know, bootstrapping a program, you were to you know, optimize like 200 people, you're the first security hire. When you're hired into that role, obviously coming from Adobe, you know, Twitter, you're obviously a manager in both the roles previous to this. When you come in there and you're being hired and they're asking you what you're going to do, the advice, the feedback you're providing how does this company of that size digesting that? Because obviously they're looking at the strategic bigger picture, but also, oh man, this is going to change things. Yeah, it, uh, we were very clear up front, like hey, the best way to like get a lot of security fast would be like coming in as an individual contributor. Yeah, like could be a manager, could scale up a team from the start, but like just to get ball rolling, it would be much more effective to have one very, very highly leveraged subject matter expert building partnerships throughout the organization. And uh, so it was like a, a clear plan from the beginning. Hey, I'm going to join as an individual contributor and then scale up a team when the time is right. And uh, that was good because just starting out, like there was no process that had gone to. It was like agile, but without Scrum or anything. So it's it was all about like word of mouth and kind of like inbound marketing, like developing relationships. So people were bringing security questions to me and then I had liberty to go poke around in whatever I wanted in the infrastructure to just sniff out what I figured was uh, top concerns for me that would be a problem. And then I could just walk across the floor to find the uh, engineer who could fix it right there. It was uh, the opposite of like process. It was just like a lot of like, let's just grow things very tactically. 
and very precise on particular areas that were problems. But then as the uh, organization gets bigger, uh, I'd say we got into like over the 50 engineer threshold. And uh, then you're like, the company's also thinking like, okay, engineering organization, now we want to like start getting some uh, predictability in our deploys. Like we've cleaned up our keys so not everybody has like admin access keys sitting on their laptop. Like we have some deploy automation here. We have some separation of duties. So now like as the company is maturing their engineering processes, that's a good time. Okay, now like let's start maturing security processes as well before we get too far and then have to bolt those on later. Let's start with some inexpensive hooks into the, the software development process. I guess as you're getting in there and and obviously it's been six years and you're kind of progressing through building out the security program. Did you notice a shift in terms of the perception of security? Because obviously, you know, maybe we'll talk about, you know, further back in the perception of security and views of, you know, other organizations, but within Optimizely, were you seeing security as a becoming more of a partner? Were you seeing, you know, integration into the engineering teams? Yeah, like starting out, culture was awesome. Like, Everybody in engineering was really excited about security, wanted to do the right thing. They were maybe not super familiar with software security. They'd gotten tastes of it and wanted to learn more. And they're like, hey, I really want to do this right. Help me do it. And uh, there's a million things they could be doing for security. And uh, I was there to help them figure out like which are the like one or two things they should focus on and screen out the rest until later or never. That went great. And uh, I would say there's a great partnership security and engineering there. We ran into a, a tough spot when compliance came along. So customers wanted to see PCI compliance. The issue with PCI compliance is the standard is very prescriptive. And it says you have to do things this way. You have to do your security this PCI way, whether it makes sense for you or not. And uh, our project for building out PCI compliance, it did like increase our security maturity a bit, but it did it in ways... We would not have like built our security in that way. Otherwise, we wouldn't have put so much like change management process and we uh, upfront, we wouldn't have had quite so many reviews at that point in time, like formal processes for it. And uh, the issue there was like, how do you message like what is what we're doing for PCI and for compliance separate from what we're doing for security? It was hard. And a lot of folks like would just mix up the two. Oh, okay, I got to do this security because of compliance. And then it became, oh, well, do I have to do this? Well, it must be because of compliance. And then it became, oh man, I have to do something I don't want to do. And it must be due to security and compliance. And so that that like, it tarnished the reputation of security because of the less than ideal things we had to do for compliance. That took some time to uh, refine the messaging on, had to like beat the drum constantly on like, why is PCI important to the business? And uh, what are we doing? And to be clear, like PCI, just PCI, we do things in a certain way for compliance, but then for security and how we manage risk outside of our PCI environment, that's very different. And that's up to us and we control our own destiny there. And uh, you just can't over-communicate enough to like keep that distinction clear, both like with the broader engineering organization, but also with top-level engineering management and midline engineering managers because they need to also be like echoing these messages constantly as well to clear confusion. Yeah, you know what's interesting is um the common theme that I hear interviewing security executives is when an organization brings security into place, 
it's a big shift. When they bring compliance into place, the pain is multiple fold just because it's two competing, I guess, concepts. And there is, you know, compliance is not security. Maybe for security professionals, it's something easy to understand. But if you're outside of it, you know, like these we've been talking about, you kind of might seeing a, a bit of a blurred line. I guess when you're looking at it and you're, you know, having to implement, you know, compliance and you're also focused on security. What's your philosophy? Are you looking at, you know, third-party operators and bring the right vendor in? Are you looking for opportunities to build what you can because you want to have it be more custom? So, you know, the requirements are more fulfilled depending on potentially what you're trying to address? Yeah, the uh, typical security point of view is in the build versus buy analysis. First off, have one. And sometimes with engineering that happens, sometimes engineers want to jump straight to build. Can't police that all the time, but you can encourage that it happens. And then in the build versus buy analysis, typically the security point of view is very biased to buying because you shift that responsibility of all that security, compliance, privacy, everything onto the vendor. And you can focus on building business value and not on built, toiling away, doing security processes, patch management, network security, things like that encouraging like the full set of trade-offs to be made there like sometimes there may be build versus buy analyses but maybe it was done just like with uh, okay which one's more cost effective like do we want to use this aws service to manage our kubernetes infrastructure or do we want to spin up our own kubernetes cluster do our own management and we don't have to pay that like crazy fee for eks okay like you save the company five figures a year but uh, if you're spending two engineers a year costing 300K a piece on uh, maintaining the security availability of that Kubernetes cluster, like it may not be optimizing for the right thing. So it's also about making awareness, hey, like you are doing a build versus buy analysis, like take a full view of all the trade-offs, not just optimize for one or two things. Do you see the shift left that you know security is undergoing? Do you see that as just a natural progression of I guess seeing what's happened in the DevOps world and you know, DevOps has definitely shifted uh, left and you know, seemingly moving further left. And, and you see security and the discussion of you know, doing a lot more automation, everything as a code, policy as a code. Is that something that you just see as a natural progression of what's happening? Yeah, I think um, what's changed with this is like five years ago, like if you were like, hey, let's deploy policy as code, and it, it like will forbid you from deploying something unless like it checks out with its uh, software composition analysis, it's already done a scan, it already like is using particular libraries or it doesn't talk to the network other than like authorized ports. That kind of like saying no upfront stuff five years ago would be shut down. Like, hey, engineers need velocity, they need liberty to do whatever they want. And then we'll use humans, human to human to make the security in. But now I, I believe like, Folks have seen like the power of open policy agent, like you can set these policies and block things. You can have like the policy right there rather than like having a security policy like an AWS or GCP security standard. It's 50 pages long. Engineers aren't going to read it. Maybe they read some of it, they deploy, and then security team reviews it and still tells them they did it wrong. But nobody likes that. And uh, but the policy, like, hey, like I don't, I don't have to go read that document. I can just go look at this policy as code. I satisfy that. And I know if I make it from there into production, then I satisfy the requirements, no documentation necessary. And I don't, it doesn't have to linger on my mind so much that like, 
security is going to come back and tell me I did it wrong half a dozen different ways. Do you see, I guess, as you're seeing something like policy as a code and on your security engineering team itself, have you seen the mindset shift in terms of, you know, previously maybe people were much more comfortable, you know, we're going to operate, we're going to manage tools versus now I'm thinking more like an engineer potentially? Yeah, I think um, one thing there is like we still like shifting this thought of like approaching something first with the document. So first writing a policy in a document and then porting that document over to code. The engineers don't really want to review documents. Yeah, it's Google Docs can be easier to collaborate on for documents, but GitHub, we can do pull requests and we can comment there. And uh, I think one thing I, I wish we'd started doing sooner is like, just let's skip the documentation and go straight to writing the policy as code. And uh, that's it. No translation needed later. Because what we found is, yeah, we, like we could crank out the documents really fast, but then there would be this gap between like what the document says and what the policy code says. I just ran into one the other day where like it was a tagging policy and like in the tagging policy document it said like seven tags are required. But then when I deployed only three were required. And then some of the tags that specified in the document, it was like the key is this. And then the value I think is for data processed is a JSON array of the types of data you're processing. Okay, that's fine. But then when I actually tried to deploy it, like I couldn't use the special characters for a JSON array in my tag value. So like we didn't even get to the point of testing that because we were working in a document first as opposed to like getting closer to like the engineering workspace and how they develop and deploy it. Like if we just done this in the policies code and turned it on that same week, we would have gotten this feedback sooner and not had this like discrepancy between what was on a wiki somewhere and what was actually happening in production. Interesting. And maybe just to stay with this for a second, because I've actually had a few people who are more IC security people reach out uh, and I always ask for topics for the show. And someone was like, you know, have someone talk about policy as a code. In this case, I think what they're trying to understand is, and maybe you can expand a little bit on this, is if my organization has not moved to policy as a code, there's still traditional. I'm a senior elite IC, maybe the CISO is not on board. You're saying obviously skipping documentation was a good step. But if you're one step before that, you're like, hey, I want to actually move into a different paradigm. Any advice since you've kind of undergone it that somebody who wants to maybe move that direction could use? Yeah, the, uh, the approach I find useful for this is one that's useful for a lot of software security, like introducing new things. Start very, very small. And uh, something very that you have high confidence, this could be a scanner or it could be a stack analysis tool, or it could be a policy as code enforcement. Like, start with just one rule. That's it. And make sure it's a rule that, like, you have very high confidence it's not going to give you false positives or miss the mark. Like, keep the scope very small on the rule. But get that working end to end in production. And, yeah, it's not having much impact yet, but it's one solid foundation and one solid example you can start from. And the sooner you get that in, you know, you can say, hey, this has been in production for three months and hasn't caused us problems, that you're like accruing goodwill for it from the start, even though it may be a relatively tiny impact on anything. But once you have one there and you have confidence in it, you can put two in. Going one to two, big deal. You may still have a document with two, three dozen other requirements, 
that manually have to be applied or applied in some other way. But uh, you just can incrementally put a couple of things in here. And then the nice thing about it too is like if your source code is open, other folks can contribute to it. And you may find like, I was using these for, the security team was using them for security, but maybe an SRE wants to put something in there to make their life easier, especially after they've seen it work and uh, not cause them problems. If they also see value in it and on their own, they're taking initiative to leverage it. Then you got like buy-in from other teams, which is really cool. And so you can grow from there after you've built up that good first example. Awesome. Yeah. So if you're trying to champion policies of code, start small. Are there any particular people that, you know, obviously you see as potential, you know, allies in kind of getting that you know, started? Is there like a, maybe you mentioned, you know, maybe working with the DevOps or SRE team who might want to contribute. Is it, you know, also talking about it a little bit more in terms of, hey, this is what I'm trying to do. Because obviously, you know, getting a little bit more buy-in and goodwill is, is obviously going to help strengthen your case. Yeah, I think the, like, out of all engineering teams, the one that the security teams that should make their number one priority for partnership is the SRE or DevOps team. And uh, it's really spending a lot of time on the relationships and developing a high level of trust there. And uh, talking about security goals and SRE goals and finding overlap in them, being very clear and supportive of some of that security infrastructure, or maybe a lot of it, or the vast majority of it, being owned and operated by the DevOps or SRE team. I don't think it's healthy to like have a parallel security infrastructure team separate from the SRE team's infrastructure. I do believe like it's better for security to be part of the SRE team's charter and they can own and operate infrastructure that's there for security. They meet security requirements. They're talking to the security team about it. We spend a lot of time on alignment, but uh, you don't need security to actually own and maintain that infrastructure. And that's also really good for the organization because it's much more flexible if you scale up a SRE team and they can work on security one day, scalability the next, availability another, developer productivity another, whatever the business needs. And then your security team can stay focused on security and maximizing the leverage they have in that security subject matter expertise as opposed to like you have two of your four security engineers spending half their day just like keeping the lights on with some security infrastructure. Awesome. I think that's golden. I think that uh, I'm going to definitely, once the podcast is live, I'm going to, I'm going to send the links to a couple of people that pretty much in, in dialogue ask similar questions. Because I think a lot of people see the discussion of shifting left. And then a lot of times it's like, well, my organization hasn't even moved off the dial. How do I start? I mean, that was a really nice blueprint in terms of how someone can start small, get a champion, the partnership with SREs. I guess if you were looking back yourself, you know, maybe previous jobs or just what was happening five, 10 years ago. Did you anticipate like this bubbling up? I mean, is it something you saw happening in terms of this level of policies of code, everything as a code, you know, partnering with SREs a lot more? So I think like five years ago, there was a lot of talk about these things. And uh, so like Microsoft Security Development Lifecycle, we talked about secure libraries. Uh, folks talked about tooling, hey, let's let's get the tooling on sooner. But the quality of the frameworks and tools that you had was was pretty limited. So like Microsoft example, like, hey, build security into frameworks. Okay. What are some examples of that? Well, there's a safe stream library. All right, that's nice. What else? <laughs> and like maybe you get a, a web framework uh, serving security headers, but it's a pretty limited set and uh, it wasn't covering like 
think of like 120 different security controls I would like to have frameworks or libraries or something for maybe like half a dozen of those tops had that kind of capability at the time. Also, uh, until recently, like, so tooling, okay, scanning tools, scanning tools have really high false positive rates. And so do you really want to shift left and have to make a tool happy if it's like noisy and you're you know, full-time job just like waiting through false positives there. Now, like you have a lot more options than just static analysis tools. And in fact, I don't think those make sense with a lot of languages in like a SaaS company to make a lot of sense for like unmanaged code, C, C++, maybe something like Python or PHP if you're Facebook. But uh, for a lot of folks, they just like you're not going to get value out of those. But yeah, you have these policy tools. You have tools to tell you about the health of your containers. You have software composition analysis. There's a lot more options now. AWS security configuration monitoring, DCP security configuration monitoring. These are the kind of things that uh, where you can really tune and get a lot of value out of them and have like more comprehensive story of shifting left than you could before. Awesome, man. I think this has been a fantastic uh, show. I'm hoping uh, whoever ends up listening to it, who is trying to get off the ground, can kind of take these words and apply them. If someone wants to actually reach out to you and you know might have a follow up question because obviously we're not <laughs> we're not getting super deep on any particular subject, but uh, is LinkedIn or Twitter is there a particular a social medium you like somebody to potentially reach out via? Yeah, LinkedIn or Twitter are fine. Happy to chat with anybody who wants to as follow up. Awesome, awesome. So we'll definitely add those to the show notes again. Thanks for being on. Great topics we've covered. So that'll be the end of this show. And uh, we'll be back next week, different guests, different show. And uh, in the meantime, always looking for more ideas. If somebody has a topic they want answered, uh, just like we did today, it, uh, it definitely trying to help uh, expand uh, the reach of the podcast. So if you can also subscribe or like or whatever you need to do to get us some feedback, good or bad, I'd love to do uh, know that. Till next week, we'll be back again. Thanks.